Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in American Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I am Diana DePasquale, and today we'll be talking to Colin Woodard. He is the author of Union, The Struggle to Forge the Story of United States Nationhood, which is published by Viking, an imprint of Penguin Random House. Some things you should know about Colin Woodard. He's a New York Times bestseller, writer, historian, and a journalist who's reported from more than 50 foreign countries and six continents a longtime foreign correspondent for the Christian Science Monitor and the San Francisco Francisco Chronicle. He's a reporter at the Portland Press Herald, where he received a 2012 George Polk Award and was a finalist for a 2016 Pulitzer Prize. His work has appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, The Economist, Smithsonian, and Politico. He's the author of American Nations, American Character, The Lobster Coast, The Republic of Pirates, and Ocean's End. Uh, so first off, I'd like to say welcome, Colin. It's so uh, such a pleasure to have you here on New Books Network. Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks so much. Um, my first question that I'd like to ask you is, uh, or my first comment, I guess, is that this is your first book since 2016's American Character, a history of the epic, epic struggle between individual liberty and the common good. And so in the four years since that book was published and uh, today, what what led you to to sort of approach the union um, uh, since 2016? Well, American character was essentially a warning saying that, um, you know, the things that sustain liberal democracies, what we used to call Western democracies in general, and our country in specific, that um, those things were uh, under attack, that the sinews that um, hold a a liberal democracy together and and the social trust and the... um, the relationship and balance between the pursuit of individual liberty and the pursuit of building of a free community, that all of those things were unbalanced in the United States and that, you know, bad things would follow if we didn't stabilize the situation. And it offered, you know, a paths forward based on our history and our balkanized character, the fact that we're really a collection of sort of stateless nations of very different um, regional cultures that wound up by accident in the revolutionary period in a federation together. Um, what changed since then is essentially almost as soon as American character came out in 2016, um, we hit the iceberg. You know, the, the um, liberal democracy itself is very obviously imperiled um, mm-hmm. and uh, imperiled by, you know, authoritarian and ethno-nationalist ideologies. And those are things that um, I'm unfortunately well familiar with from my, you know, my background in both scholarship and journalism all ties back to Eastern Europe and the Balkans uh, with the collapse of communism and the um, ethnic conflicts that followed, including the Bosnian conflict. And those are things that I studied in university and graduate school and in between um, was reporting on and experiencing first as a student and then as a longtime foreign correspondent in that region of the world. And we were seeing the, 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 
with the rise of Donald Trump and Trumpism, we're seeing the actual, you know, not a question of how do you stabilize your liberal democracy so bad things don't happen, but rather bad things are happening now. You know, how do you save the show? And Union is contributing to that in this way. I mean, one of my previous books, American Nations, had made the, the argument about us always having been separate Americas in that regional culture way. Um, this book explores, well, how is it that a, a story, a sort of, you know, mythic narrative of the United States having had a shared origin story dating back centuries and uh, a shared identity and a shared purpose, where did that come from? Because, you know, I knew it didn't really exist in the 1850s or the 1860s, um, and it certainly hadn't existed before that. So when was it created and by who? And, you know, what, and how did it manage to take hold? And this is the story of that. And it's important because there ended up being a battle between a civic national vision, an idea that what holds America and Americans together is a shared fealty to ideals, to the ideals specifically in the, in the um, Declaration of Independence about um, the um, inherent uh, equality of humans and their unalienable rights. Uh, including, you know, the pursuit of happiness and life and liberty and uh, consensual self-government. That was up against an ethno-national vision from the very beginning of the creation of these narratives. And that ethno-national, you know, initially as a, um, an argument for Anglo, this being the homeland of the allegedly superior Anglo-Saxon race and later, you know, an expanding term that, you know, included became white supremacy ultimately, even though it was even more constrictive than that initially, that that um, ethno-national tradition has been absolutely dominant over the entire Federation at times in our history, including the 1910s and 1920s, which is when Union concludes. So it tells the story of our national mythic story and its creation. And the reason it's important is, you know, if we are to hold this federation together and also reset our sense of shared purpose and commitment to ideals, we very much need to know what the, um, what, what the heritage of our national story is all about, who created it, what parts have been you know, helpful and laudatory, what parts we might want to dispense with now, and especially the fact that this virulent ethno-nationalist and white supremacist narrative goes back just as far and has been at different times in our history um, very much and explicitly, you know, the, the dominant force in the country and, and in pop culture and everything else. It's a, it's a demon that should not be underestimated. And, I, you know, I think people, when I started writing this book in, you know, 2017 or so, more people would have considered that um, a less dangerous demon than they do now in 2020. But here we are. Right. That's a really interesting thing um, uh, about that. That was one of the first things that struck me about this book is this, these competing ideas about identity, collective goals, collective um, purpose of the nation. And it's interesting the people that you chose are so different in the ways that they think about um, both race, racism. So for example, uh, William Sims Mm is his, his work is deeply informed by his ideas about race and racial superiority. But then you contrast that with someone like Frederick Douglass, who's probably even to people who aren't um, uh, academics in American history or American studies, 
probably the most well-known abolitionist in American history. Um, how much does race and racism, or, or did it from the start go into you writing this book about this has always been here um, and they've always been in competition and struggle, uh, like you mentioned in dominance, you talked about the heritage of our nation. Um, it's so strange that your book, which starts in 1800, is really so relevant to today and the stuff that's going on today. Yeah, and becoming more so. I mean, depressingly so, I must say that it's as relevant as it is, but absolutely. And when I set out to write this book initially, I didn't expect that race and white supremacy and all that would become absolutely the central you know, spinal cord of much of it. I mean, maybe that says something about me and my background as being, you know, a white guy who grew up in rural Maine and the whitest state in the country to have discounted the level that was true. I certainly appreciated it was true, but not that it was so absolutely front and center almost everywhere you look. Um, because what I thought was going to happen in this story when I was first thinking about it is I assumed that essentially there was no real story of United States nationhood until after the Civil War. And that it was after the Civil War and the collapse of Reconstruction amid that, you know, the, the sort of, you know, KKK's terrorist campaign, that white Americans north and south, you know, whether they're from the Deep South or Tidewater or Yankeedom or whatever from my regional cultures, that they all had a collective interest in wanting to put it all behind them and reunite the country, right? They'd had hundreds of thousands of deaths, the commitment to the actual, you know, civic um, um, ideals and the Declaration of Independence apparently wasn't enough for white Northerners to want to try to carry on against a terrorist campaign in the South. And that together, um, there was a cross-sectional drive to create a mythic story that could unite blue and gray. Everyone fought honorably. Um, we all have this shared commitment going back centuries and have more in common than we don't. That it was a, essentially a post-war reconciliation, you know, among whites, North and South, to create a story that would hold the North and South together going forward and create a United States. That's what I thought it was going to be. Only I discovered that the story went back, you know, a half century earlier than that, that the real efforts to begin offering and putting forth a convincing story of United States unity and nationhood supposedly extending back centuries started in the 1830s and um, very quickly became a battle between that civic national narrative that I thought would have been invented later uh, and this um, white supremacist, you know, Anglo-Saxon um, ethnostate model, which also emerged in the 1830s through William Gilmore Sims. So the, the fact that the struggle over identifying the United States came decades before the Civil War, even in what they used to call the era of good feelings, mm -hmm. um, entirely reset just the depth at which this white supremacy narrative as a central fact of the country, that it goes back just as far as the civic national one, um, and that they were struggling and fighting about it even before the tensions that led to the Civil War were becoming obvious to any of the parties. So I guess the depth that it, that it goes back... Um, to the beginnings of our uh, uh, efforts to define the United States was, you know, revelatory to me. I mean, I, I figured that out very early on in my pre-research, but um, yeah, that's, that was surprising to me just how deep it goes. And everyone who's ever said that race is central to the American story has been absolutely right. <laughs> 
What about um, how often, how early, and how much does the concept of American exceptionalism emerge throughout uh, your book and its connection to this shared national heritage or identity? Uh, it comes up very quickly because the first draft of the of the American you know, United States's national story was created by a guy named George Bancroft in the 1830s. He's the first one to package and put forth something that everyone's like, oh my gosh, you know, that, that's an amazing idea and started grappling with and started um, infiltrating through, you know, what was then the internet of ideas through speeches and books and the republishing in newspapers of speeches and the retweeting, so to speak, of those speeches by other newspapers who would typeset down the, uh, the transcript of a speech and then comment on it. And then other people, you know, would have responses like a slow motion Twitter uh, and books and speeches developed the ideas. And that's where the ideas were fought over. So George Bancroft is the first person to really launch uh, a successful concept. And because of his background, he was a Yankee New Englander through and through culturally and from experience and family. Uh, he's a descendant of the early Puritans. He grew up in Massachusetts, the son of a leading congregational minister. He was sent as a very young man to Phillips Exeter and to Harvard, and then was sent by the president of Harvard in 1818 as a young man to go get uh, something that almost no American had, a PhD, a doctorate. Uh, a degree that you could only get essentially in Europe and really only in Germany at the new research universities that had been created there. And um, the president of Harvard wanted to send a cadre of young Harvard graduates out to get such a degree and have these scientific-based rational approach, you know, um, new social scientists who could come back and become the professors who would lead this little essentially boarding school uh, into what we would consider to be sort of a more modern world of research. And in Germany, he ended up studying under the great romantic German nationalist thinkers. You know, the Van Humboldt, the Humboldts and, uh, and Herring and Hegel were his professors. And so he came back, and this is to answer your question, to eventually to write the story of United States nationhood through his incredibly popular 10-volume history of the United States, a, really a prehistory of the United States of its colonial period, he ended up bonding these Puritan ideas, right, of, a, of that, that were, a, you know, the Puritans thought themselves as a covenanted people, like in the Divine Old Divine providence. Right, exactly, that, that God had chosen them to do certain things in the world and would judge them accordingly. They had an, that errand in the wilderness. They had to you know, put a light on the hill. They had to come and make a, according to them, more godly and perfect society here and now on earth. And that was their literally a mission they had. And so Bancroft took that and fused it with various German ideas uh, from his professors about each, you know, nation, nations being uh, akin to organisms, that each of them um, had uh, a seed. From its seed, it had instructions that would, you know, what we consider genetic instructions, essentially, as to what sort of society they would be. And that from the very beginning, once you planted that seed, it was almost inevitable that it would grow from these various national characteristics in it. So he took the, that idea and transplanted it to North America and said, okay, it may look like South Carolina and Massachusetts and Virginia and the Dutch settled area around New York City and the Appalachian Scots-Irish backcountry. It may look like those were totally separate colonial projects with different ethnological and religious characteristics, different original intents and political systems who had almost nothing in common. But in fact, they were each growing 
from the same seeds and that they were all growing towards this moment of being the United States and that the United States was destined, was God chosen to uh, carry out its mission. And its mission was to carry the baton of human freedom forward further uh, you know, for all of humans through time, but also across this continent. And so that idea, he didn't use the term manifest destiny, mm-hmm. but uh, commentators drawing on his work and praising it were the ones who coined the phrase from Bancroft's own histories. And Bancroft himself was not merely a historian in an ivory tower, but served as a cabinet official in the Polk administration. He was the Secretary of War and Secretary of the Navy, and later was our ambassador to the United Kingdom, and then later to Germany. Uh, And while um, serving in Polk's cabinet, I mean, he actually pulled the levers of history. He gave the orders that ultimately caused the the war with Texas and the annexation of Texas, and gave the orders as Secretary of the Navy to the naval personnel who ended up seizing California uh, for the United States as well. So you know, he actually played a role at, uh, in the manifest destiny ideas that were encoded in his history. So it all comes that, and it comes back to the very beginning in the 1830s, again, drawing on those, those New England Puritan tropes fused with the German ones. And these are tropes, right, that don't apply to other regions of the country that don't share in that Puritan heritage. These were somewhat alien and obscure notions, and that began the tension uh, over what our real national story would be. That's a great segue um, into, since you brought up across the continent and you you dropped the phrase manifest destiny so casually, can you, one of the other people that you um, profile, one of the five figures that you profile is Frederick Jackson Turner, who of course looms extremely large in American studies for his frontier thesis. And so can you talk about the way that our ideas of collective identity were informed by these, you mentioned the land grabs in Texas and California. What does Frederick Jackson Turner's uh, frontier thesis, how is this all sort of connected as well? Yeah, so, uh, so the structure of union is I told it through the lives of the people, the, these primary people who packaged and sort of fought the battle over who we were going to be. So it has separate storylines, kind of reads like a novel, and the, the storylines of the separate characters collide with stakes of you know, national you know, and global consequence. And as you move on through the story, you reach uh, Frederick Jackson Turner and the other characters of his generation who were children during the Civil War and grew up through the end of the 19th century. So the story takes almost a century overall. And what Turner did is Turner basically uh, takes the mantle of the ideas that George Bancroft had put forward in the 1830s and was still putting forward. Bancroft was born in 1800 and didn't die until the 1890s. So he was present and writing all the way through the entire century. But Turner um, essentially modified the idea. He said, yes, you know, we were uh, a nation devoted to these principles in the Declaration, but rather than God being involved, remember Turner is writing and is really active in his career in the 1890s and 1910s. And this is after, you know, Darwin had shaken up the entire world of science and therefore social science. And so what he substituted in was uh, rather than God choosing it, it's actually can be explained through uh, Darwinian ideas about uh, natural selection. And, and uh, no, sorry, uh, about um, environmental uh, adaptation, that um, each of these, uh, when settlers crossed over the Appalachian Mountains and into the Midwest and, and the interior West, 
they left the taint of Europe behind uh, and all of its feudal institutions that had supposedly infected the East Coast. And from Turner's perspective, had entered a sort of Eden, right? He didn't really um, take the Native Americans uh, as major characters. They're almost like scenery who disappeared into the into the background as the settlers right. arrived, you know. So you know, there's there's all kinds of incredible abuse of history and what actually happened. But the way he told it is, they entered this Eden and therefore were able to become themselves. That in the frontier environment, that even though all of these settlement streams, the one coming out of New England that was settling the upper Great Lakes states, uh, the one coming out of William Penn's colonies and the Quaker-founded colonies with its strong um, German immigrant influence that was spreading over the middle part of the lower Great Lakes states, the greater Appalachian, you know, Scots-Irish settlers and the southern tiers of the, of, you know, Ohio and Indiana and Illinois and, and much of Missouri and so on, even though they appeared to be entirely different, once they reached this shared frontier environment that, that they all adapted, just like Darwin's finches adapted to the different islands in the Galapagos chain. And, and that, that adaptation is what made them Americans. It was the, the frontier in the West that, uh, that adapted and selected for what were supposedly great American qualities of being a good Republican citizen, about being self-motivated and civic-minded and committed to self-government. That was a rugged, A rugged individual. Exactly. The rugged individualism. And also remember, he's saying it's all innocent that, you know, almost this continent was just there for the taking and the Native American inhabitants just kind of rolled back and disappeared into the background. Right. That that's part of a historiographic, uh, you know, abusive trend in American history. And he was very much a part of it. Um, but that's that was his central contribution. The, the irony, which I learned in the book um, in researching the book, is that although he put this frontier thesis out, you know, at the at the the Chicago World's Fair in 1893, and it quickly took hold of American culture. He wrote a piece in the Atlantic explaining electoral politics via his, um, his thesis, and then suddenly it was everywhere. You know, he became sort of an academic superstar, and pretty soon everyone was talking about it, and novels were, you know, um, reflecting these ideas, and high school history books, and college curriculum. I mean, it just took hold, but he himself had quickly discovered that the data, and he was, a, he was a demon researcher, procrastinator as a writer, but loved to research. And he was discovering that the data he was looking at in great detail to flesh out and prove his thesis did not support it. That these separate settlement streams from New England and so on, and you know, Scots-Irish and all that, did not change over time. Any metric he looked at, you know, political behavior or, you know, um, ideas about, uh, you know, the way your, uh, your state should be governed and how your congress congressman voted, everything remained completely distinct depending on which settlement zone you're in, even, uh, you know, as the, as the natural environment supposedly should have been adapting and homogenizing and making them all into Americans. In other words, he was writing something sim that might have been similar to my American Nations book. He spent the rest of his life, decades of his life, trying to write a magnum opus about how really it was the sectional differences, which he wrote were much like European nations, the different sections that really um, allowed you to understand American history and politics and everything else. And, but being a procrastinator, he actually was never able to quite finish it. And no one remembers him for that work. Um, it was all about the frontier thesis because the frontier thesis was something that really... Um, told Americans what they wanted to hear at the time. 
Absolutely. optimistic story. Yeah. yeah. And so it's still with us, even if it was, you know, it's been discredited for the better part of a century in academic circles, but it's obviously with us in pop culture and, you know, it came to us through, you know, cowboy and Indian Westerns and everything else. And is still encoded back there, that rugged individualism stuff and John Wayne and Davy Crockett and all that. But, um, but yeah, he, the, the, the author of it himself had abandoned those ideas um, not long after writing them down. I want to switch gears here now and talk about the D.W. Griffith film, Birth of a Nation, because it's, it's integral to the story that you, um, to what you write about Woodrow Wilson. He's, one, he's the fifth um, individual that you profile in these like interconnected lived experiences of, of Americans. And Wilson exerted so much power in making sure the film got seen by so many Americans um, do you want to sort of talk more about that and what's, what's in union about that particular detail? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, Woodrow Wilson is a contemporary of Frederick Jackson Turner. They were friends. They went to graduate school together and Wilson is, uh, essential to the story because, you know, if it's said that the South lost the civil war, but won the peace, <laughs> it's Woodrow Wilson's ascension to the presidency that is the capstone of that victory because Wilson, you know, is very much a creature of the deep South. He was raised in Augusta, Georgia during the civil war. His father was, uh, the leading light of the Confederate Presbyterian church and author of a, you know, best hit, uh, uh, you know, a uh, track and a uh, sermon about how God supposedly ordained slavery, um, you know, white supremacist through and through. And then he uh, spent his adolescence in Columbia, South Carolina, in the ruins of that city uh, after the war, Sherman had burned it. Um, and his father was at the theological seminary there. And Wilson, you know, who loved his father and looked up to him his entire life, very much carried these sort of hardcore white supremacist ideas with him into academia. They're all in his books and the histories he wrote and on to the White House where he's the president who segregated the union, the federal government. But the critical thing that really shows you what happened and had enormous consequences, as you say, his intervention and endorsement of The Birth of a Nation, the first Hollywood blockbuster film. In fact, the film whose production created Hollywood as a um, filmmaking center a film that was co-produced and based on a book by another of Frederick Jackson Turner and Woodrow Wilson's classmates at the Johns Hopkins University's history seminar, Thomas Dixon Jr. Um, and Thomas Dixon Jr. was extremely worried after this massive blockbuster film had been created and was uh, heading out to be seen across the country. You know, it, it was a, it had, it had spent more, an unthinkable amount of money to make this enormous and epic film, you know, using um, uh, a volume of extras and uh, a runtime and techniques like nobody else had. And there was a lot of money on the line. And the whole thing was jeopardized. He was facing possible bankruptcy because um, the, the film celebrated the Ku Klux Klan's reign of terror in the South to uh, successfully um, reverse the political emancipation of African-Americans in the former Confederacy. And this film championed them as heroes and that everything they did had been uh, delightful because clearly um, non-white people are incapable of democratic self-government and that the KKK heroically, you know, saved white women's virtue and, and the civic space for everybody by this violent campaign. 
Um, and this was something that was also described and endorsed in Woodrow Wilson's histories he'd written to the point where the film actually has placards uh, proving their points, quoting Woodrow Wilson's history of the American people repeatedly. So it's all tied up in there. Now, this was not, um, you know, this was an incredibly controversial thing to say, uh, in, even in 1915. Uh, and many people uh, protested this film for its, you know, um, outrageous distortion of history and depiction of African-Americans. And not surprisingly, many of these protests were led by African-Americans, huge ones in cities, including New York and Boston. And at this time, the uh, Supreme Court had not yet ruled that artistic productions were protected speech under the First Amendment. So regularly, mayors and governors would censor um, theatrical productions and, and films that were believed to be contrary to public morals. And protesters, huge protests, clashing with police sometimes outside theaters, the protesters' demand was that this film be censored. And if these films were censored in major markets, there was no way that D.W. Griffith and Thomas Dixon Jr. were going to pay back the enormous cost they'd sunk into the film. So they did a Hail Mary passed. Thomas Dixon went to the White House to meet with his old friend Woodrow Wilson and ask him for a favor, which Wilson gave him. He screamed in the middle of these protests, you know, about censoring the film as being contrary to public morals. Wilson screened it in the White House for his cabinet, a fact that was promptly reported in the next day's newspapers. And on the strength of that, Thomas Dixon Jr. ran across town to meet with the, uh, the uh, Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, Justice White, and ask him to screen the film for the Supreme Court justices, which he agreed to because he'd been in the KKK and loved the topic of the film and showed it shortly thereafter in Washington's, you know, fanciest hotel ballroom, not only to the other justices, but to congressional leaders, which was also widely reported. And that made it very hard for mayors and governors in other places to say, oh, we're going to censor this film as nobody should see it if the president of the United States and the Supreme Court justices and correct congressional leadership were watching it and uh, you know, either murmuring compliments or at least implicitly endorsing it as being something that could be watched. So played a major role. And that was part of the triumph of that narrative, that reconstruction and the idea that all humans are you know, created equal and you might wanna act on those things in the way you, uh, you organize your, your country and its civics. Um, that that idea, you know, was was driven back uh, uh, in the Woodrow Wilson administration. You know, that's when you get the, all these Confederate monuments starting to go up. It lays the groundwork for the 1924 Immigration Act with its race-based quotas to supposedly mm -hmm. protect the Anglo-Saxon character of the country and so on. I mean, it was very explicit and was with us for some decades as the almost uncontested um, paradigm for the United States. There's so many... Uh... There are so many interesting people. Interesting is kind of a relative term. Let me put that. Let me put that a different way. There are so many examples throughout American history where the struggle for dominance, um, like the ones that you describe, uh, uh, emerge. What? How did you pick these five people? Uh, George Bancroft, William Gilmore Sims, Frederick Douglass, Woodrow Wilson, Frederick Jack Jackson Turner. How did you pare it down to just those five men? Right. Well, my goal was to be able to pare it down to the key characters so you could tell the story in this way through people. And that the reason I wanted to do that was not only does it make what is a boils down to a historiography of ideas, what makes it readable, but it makes it, it, it explains it much better because ideas 
are the most powerful force in human history and experience. And they can be good or really bad, but they're abstract. It's hard to understand them. How can an idea have power? You know, ideas are created by somebody and somehow take hold out there. And the people who create them, create them the way they do because of everything from their childhood to who their friends were and their parents and their enemies and the experiences they had in life and the clashes they had with others who didn't share those ideas. So by telling it through people's lives, you could bring all of those factors appropriately to bear and make the entire, um, the, the process of creating ideas that shape the world and how those ideas manage to become dominant enough to shape the world. That's the story I wanted to tell. So how to find the people a manageable number of people who would clearly and fairly represent the battle over those ideals. Well, that required going backwards in time to try to figure out first, well, when, you know, at what point did we still not, you know, obviously not have a story of United States nationhood. And when do you first start seeing the creation of a first draft of them? Okay. And who did that? Well, you run into George Bancroft very quickly if you do that kind of research work going backwards. And then it was following his work and how, it was reacted to that I started encountering the other voices allowed onto the stage, the voices who had, you know, access to what I described before is that, you know, 19th century internet of ideas uh, who were able to have a national voice and start a conversation at that level. And that runs you into Sims and then, you, and then moving forward with these other characters, Frederick Douglass being the pivotal figure in the middle of it because um, he, uh, you know, as everyone should know, he's a uh, was a, a slave who had escaped from slavery in Maryland, and through the Underground Railway had gotten to New Bedford, Massachusetts, and was discovered by the early abolitionists. You know, the Garrisonians who realized he had this incredible firsthand story to tell about the evils of slavery and what it did to the enslaved and the in, in, and those doing the enslaving, and that he was incredibly good at um, at just at uh, presenting this. And in fact, it turned out he was an incredibly good writer as well. He'd, he'd uh, taught himself uh, clandestinely to read and write. And so they put him on the speaking uh, circuit. And within a few years, he became, you know, he outgrew them, broke with them, and became this national and international star and celebrity speaking about essentially that Bancroftian vision, right? That the ideals in the Declaration of Independence are what this country is supposed to be about. But unlike Bancroft, he was absolutely aware of the fact that we had achieved none of those ideals, right? They were aspirational ones and that we, you know, the United States, we'd been hypocrites and we needed to seize on those, what he thought were good ideals unmet. And so that's why he's such an important figure is because Bancroft just said, sit back, you know, God's already chosen, just be patient, everything will turn out fine. You know, and nothing would throw him. The Civil War didn't throw him. The failure of Reconstruction didn't throw him. He was very complacent. But it's Douglas who, um, Re, more realistically was describing for Americans and imploring essentially white Northerners to stand up for the purposes for which the country had been created. And in doing so, not only was he extremely influential, even as he lost the battles during his lifetime, the, um, the, the speeches and the articulation of what the United States is supposed to be in that civic national vision, he put together probably better than anyone has before or since. So he's that pivotal figure in the middle. And then the last two figures, uh, Frederick Jackson Turner, you've already mentioned how enormous the influence of his frontier thesis has been, you know, 
to through to today, even if it was inaccurate. So you couldn't miss him in that component of things. And Woodrow Wilson, for the reasons I described, became very clear that that's where the triumph of the ethno-nationalist and white supremacist model came from. Because I wanted the book to follow until you reached a point where one of these two visions had, at least for a time, dominance across our entire federation and all the regional cultures. So that was the other bookend, start at the beginning and end when one wins for a time. And the answer was in the 1910s and early 1920s under Wilson. So that's how I chose them. You'll notice, you know, who isn't in there, right? All Mm -hmm. five of them are men. Mm -hmm. Four of them are from the east coast of the United States, right? You, You know, Frederick Jackson Turner was an interloper because he was a Westerner, right? And felt looked down on um, for that very reason. Um, All of them are um, historians and uh, and professors, essentially, except for uh, Douglas. And all of them are are, um, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, except Douglas, right? Because the stage, right, that internet of ideas was even tighter and more exclusive. Exclusively held by a, a, yeah, really sort of small representation of, of the country. Incredibly at small. And other people are really important people are shaping America, obviously. But for my criteria, where I'm trying to talk about the creation of this narrative of what the United States is explicitly, it's these people who really were fighting the battle. And, you know, uh, like, you know, Susan B. Anthony's family, Frederick Douglass was friends with them when he moved to Rochester, New York. He became friends with Susan B. Anthony's dad when she was young and knew all of them. And he ended up, you know, participating actively in the, in the women's suffrage movement. He was one of the only um, male speakers at the Seneca Falls Convention and, and drove the, uh, the internal debate at Seneca Falls as to whether or not they should demand the vote. That was controversial. And he backed the faction that said, you should demand the vote. And, uh, you know, um, he knew, you know, Ida B. Wells and, and, uh, and Harriet Tubman, he crosses paths with Harriet, you know, he's a stop on the underground railway at his house in Rochester, New York, cause it was close to Ontario. And she was regularly coming there with her, her passengers in quotes, you know, probably, you know, packing weapons and going back and forth into the, into the, the South to bring back people. And they both were, um, friends with John Brown of Harper's Ferry fame and were involved in helping him in his, uh, the lead up to his uh, disastrous uh, raid on Harper's Ferry. So many other people were involved, but um, these I think were fairly the, um, if you had to pick a handful of people who really drove and were permitted to drive in the space to, to argue in the 19th century as to what the United States was. Um, I think I'm, I'm, very confident in these being a pretty accurate representation, even as it's obviously excluding, you know, lots of other people who maybe should have had the stage, but, you know, we didn't, they did not, we don't live in ideal times and they certainly didn't back then. Sure. Uh, I, I'm so, uh, your, your book provides so much context in looking backwards to sort of understand what's been going on now and what is currently going on. Um, so I want to really thank you for this piece of scholarship. And I, my, my final question for you is what are you working on now? Are you going to take a break or um, what's, what's going on? Yeah, in my day job in journalism, I live in Maine and I'm sort of the investigative reporter for the big paper here in Maine. So it's all pandemic all the time, right? Doing watchdog journalism to make sure that, you know, our readership survives the pandemic. But in terms of books and such, um, I've got a lot of things I'm interested in, but I, when you're writing a book, you know, your book is not going to come out and be in stores until 
at least three years or so uh, <laughs> down the road from when you even sign a contract with your publisher and trying to guess where you'll be at and what the public is going to want to be interested in engaging with. Um, even if you're writing about history, to know the, to the zeitgeist at the time, I, it's the factor of what happens between November and January, who wins the presidency, whether there's a peaceful transfer of power, is so massive that, you know, if... Donald Trump is president in February. We're living in such a different alternate universe from if Joe Biden wins the presidency or there's a peaceful transfer of power that to try to write a book and come up with an idea before I know that seems like a fool's errand. So I'm not going to make any, any big decisions until February or March as to what to do next at the book scale. Fair enough. Okay. Well, uh, Colin Woodard, thank you so much for talking to me today. This has been uh, New Books in American Studies. And once again, Colin Woodard is the author of Union, The Struggle to Forge the Story of United States Nationhood. And it's published by Viking, an imprint of Penguin Random House. Colin, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. It was a delight. <laughs>